Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone, I am on the line with Brian Burke. Brian is a senior analytics specialist at ESPN. Brian, welcome to This Week in Machine Learning and AI. Hi, Sam. Thanks for having me. Uh, just as we started, you mentioned that you've been listening to the show for a couple of years. Uh, that being the case, you know that uh, we speak to a lot of folks with really varied backgrounds on the show, but I think this may be the first time that we've ever uh, talked to someone who started their career as a jet pilot, or at least uh, no one's mentioned it thus far. How did you get from being a jet pilot to working in deep learning? I'd love to hear the story. Yeah, um, sure. I I left the the Navy in um, in around uh, 2005, and uh, did some work in the defense industry. Uh, after flying flying jets in the Navy off of carriers, what I was <laughs> what I was doing was was pretty boring. I had a lot of uh, spare you know megahertz left over at the end of the day, <laughs> um, and I, I was a big football fan. Um, I, I noticed that the the kind of the level of statistical analysis and, and, you know, comment in the media was, was pretty lacking. I was pretty frustrated with it. I was like, uh, the Navy had earlier had sent me to graduate school and put me through a program that, that was heavy in statistics. I had never used any of those, you know, in my career in the Navy. But once I left, I said, why don't we use some of the stuff that, you know, the military uses to, to win battles and wins wars uh, to help win football games? And I was pretty ignorant of the Moneyball revolution and sabermetrics and Bill James. I was completely unaware of that stuff. Okay. Um, so I was kind of – but that was a big advantage because a lot of the baseball people were, were looking at football research and they were trying to uh, use that same cookie cutter on football and it just didn't work. It's a very different kind of sport. I kind of had this military background. Uh, it was more appropriate way of, of looking at it. It was kind of two-player, zero-sum game theory approach and um, – you know, kind of like we say in a dog fight, like, uh, you know, it, it, it's a it's a knife fight in a phone booth. You know, one guy's not going home that day. So that's kind of like a, that's kind of like a football game. It's uh, football is probably the most you know martial sport there is. Um, so that that's what the motivation was. So I had some software left over from, you know, the trial period it ended from grad school. And I, and I was having a debate, I remember, with with a coworker of mine. And we were talking about, does defense win championships? And I was, we were just going around in circles, just like most water cooler conversations like that. Mm-hmm. And I said, wait a minute, we can answer this. Let's let's just download the stats. I've got the software left over. We'll run a regression. We'll, we'll have an answer by the end of lunch. And I just – I I love um, that. Yeah, I just got hooked. And I was like, we can do more. Oh, we can predict games with this. We can do all these sorts of things. And so I really got in on the ground floor of, of football analytics and a lot of the core models uh, that are that are in use today uh, throughout the league, um, you know, that the teams use themselves. The, I was I was the the developer of things like that. So expected points, win probability models, some of the like the core metrics um, that all came out of that period. Uh, so a few years later, did you uh, you know is it still as easy as hey let's just uh, run a quick regression on that or? Uh, did you learn from uh, from that initial experience that it's there's a lot more to it? Well, that was that was it. I mean, it was I, w- I was mostly self-taught a lot of the, these modeling approaches, and 
the world has really changed since 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, just the explosion of uh, data and tools and modeling approaches. And, and so you have to learn them about as quickly as, as they come out. So, um, and, and the paper we'll talk about today was no exception. I had to go learn, teach myself neural networks just to kind of keep up with the, the state of the art. Uh, yeah, well, let's dive into that. You uh, wrote a paper called Deep QB, Deep Learning with Player Tracking to Quantify Quarterback Decision-Making and Performance. Um, tell us a little bit about the background of that paper. Well, at ESPN, we got access to uh, player tracking data from the National Football League. Uh, so we have up, up to about four seasons worth of data now. Um we had about two and a half at the time I did the paper. Uh, it's proprietary data. There are chips on each shoulder pad of each player and in every game for every play. And so we have a really accurate um, position, velocity, acceleration, orientation data at 10 hertz, uh, 10 times per second. Mm. It updates. So And, and it's almost real time, too. So we, we there's an API we can tap into. And so when we got access to this data, this was even before the teams had access it was it was a lot. It was um, kind of the first true big data set that we had to wrestle with at ESPN uh, on the sports side. How long has, so, have those chips been uh, been in the, the you know been available? I think it's t- 2016. I think was the the first full season uh, they they did it. Yeah, so I think we have four full seasons now, okay. and it was I think the first season was was a little bit more of a trial. And the data is a little bit spotty, but um, 17, 18, 19, uh, they've been improving it. So um, so we got this data. We were like, well, we have to exploit it somehow. Let's let's get an advantage. What are we going to do? We we came up with some some pretty good ideas. Some things, some of our best uh, things aren't even kind of machine learning. It, it's just simple geometry. So we can analyze blocks, for example. Like uh, Before, football, before we do that, I'm, I'm like uh, – I'm. Uh, trying to figure out the the scale of this data um, in terms of you know number of teams by number of games by number <laughs> of players by ten measurements a second. Can you help us kind of uh, think through uh, you know or get a sense for how much data we're actually talking about here? About one game would be about four gigabytes, I guess. So we can put you can put wow. one game at a time in your laptop and, and kind of chew on it. So that, that's kind of what I do. Okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah, to, to span across games though, you, you, you have to, um, you have to really digest, you know, I, I would say 80% of the effort on this project was just digesting the, the data and processing it in a way that, um, was manageable for, for analysis. You mentioned an API, like, are you going and downloading all the data from a given game or do you need to like collect it in real time or something like that? No, it, it doesn't need to be collected in real time, although it, it could be. And and we have been doing that for some um, spot analysis. So for Monday Night Football, for example. Okay. Um, but uh, yeah, we will, uh, you can go back and, and um, get get past games as well. Uh, so the, the system is called Next Gen Stats. That's the NFL's Kind of brand for for the uh, for the stats. It's it's highly proprietary, but as a as a media partner of the NFL, you know we negotiated access, um, and uh, and so yeah, we we de- typically I think we download a play at a time. Okay. Um, and is the the API or the the 
does the API allow you to download a specific play or do you have to do like play segmentation on your own at the game level to figure out, you know, when a play starts and when a play stops or do they like code that when they're collecting the data? No, they code that. Um, okay. They do an excellent job. I can't give them enough credit. So the, the certain events are tagged as well. Um, so when the snap occurs, when there's, when a the huddle breaks, um, you know, when a tackle occurs, all these, all these events are ta- pre-tagged. So we, we don't have to do a lot of our own, um, kind of uh, tagging. Okay. Okay. Great. Um, yeah. So, so apologies for interrupting you. I just, it was kind of curious about the, the data that you're working with. So you're saying that, uh, some of the things that you're working with, you know, don't even require machine learning. You're able to do things just based on the geometry of the, is it the player formations that you're looking at uh, from a geometry perspective? Well, that's one thing you can do. Uh, yeah. So for example, one of the keys advantages to the, the Los Angeles Rams offense last year was they were doing a couple of things. They would sprint from their huddle straight to the line of scrimmage and snap the ball real quick. And that wouldn't give t- defenses times to kind of swap what we call strong and weak sides and do a lot of last second preparation before the ball snapped. The other thing they would do is uh, compress their formations, very tight formations, which which made it difficult for um, p- pass coverage uh, players to uh, to play man to man defense. So that it, it forced the hand of the defenses. So just very simple things. We could just measure the time between the huddle break and when the ball snapped for all the different teams and see which teams stand out and do analysis like that. That doesn't really require any sort of number crunching um, beyond simple, you know, averages, mm-hmm. you know, summary statistics uh, and, or, you know, the width of formation, you know, mean width of formations for different teams and see how things stand out. My, my favorite thing so far has been something that's been a bit of a holy grail in football for a long time, which is stats for linemen. So, so much of football is kind of what we say in the trenches. And it's these, these <laughs> the big guys who get no credit. You only hear their name when they mess up, uh, but they do uh, so much of the, the work uh, to make teams successful. But there's no real statistic. I mean, for defensive pass rushers, there's sacks and some other things like that, but they're not very telling um, – uh, or they're not very representative of overall performance. Mm-hmm. Uh, so what we did was we created uh, a pass blocking and pass rushing metric that just looked at the geometry of the player. So I, I can tell who's blocking who. I can see who's being double teamed. I can see how long uh, blocks are being held. So um, part of the problem in in, in football is uh, they're, they're analyzing things the wrong way. Um, you have to look at an offensive line as like a, a survival system. So it's like a systems engineering problem. It's kind of like a chain, right? And the first chain that breaks, it, the weakest link in that chain is the one that really matters. Uh, so we, we look at how long that system can survive and, and do analysis like that. And it's no more than, I know if you're very, very close to me and your shoulders are oriented to me, then you must be trying to block me. And if I get closer to the quarterback than you are, then I've won that block or you're holding me. Either way, it's a win um, for me. So we can see how long those those blocks are held. And we drew a line in the sand just to keep things simple. At 2.5 seconds, 
which is average time to throw, which is kind of the benchmark in the league for uh, how long you have to sustain a block in, in a passing situation. And, um, and, and it's, it's really taken off. Uh, it's, we, we, pu- we published like a first article about it on our, on our website. And that afternoon we had NFL general managers calling, looking for uh, um, full lists for all the players in the league. Oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. One of the things that strikes me hearing your description of this, that, you know, is not uh, all that dissimilar from uh, the application of uh, machine learning in the business type of context, you know, traditional business type of context is, you're often needing to, you know, define the problem, formulate the problem, define the metrics that are important. And it sounds like, yeah, I would have thought coming into this conversation that, you know, we pretty well define the the important, you know, metrics uh, in sports. Although, you know, now that I'm saying that, that's, uh, you know, the whole thing with Moneyball was that we had all those metrics wrong, right? And it was really mm-hmm. this, you know, get on first base probability that, um you know, that hadn't really been looked at uh, and kind of redefined the game. Have you figured out, you know, is there that, you know, one standout metric kind of money ball metric in, in football? Have you figured that out yet? Uh, or uh, have you found several of these, like the the blocking uh, example you just gave? Well, the, the blocking is, is really just an individual performance metric, which has been football. It, baseball is really unique uh, with the exception of cricket. In that it, it's really a simple sequential matchup problem between kind of pitcher and batter, yeah. and so you can isolate individual performance very very easily in baseball. Uh, football is a parallel system, right? There's 22 players on the field. Mm. There's 21 factorial interaction terms occurring between all the players. Um, it, it's extremely chaotic, uh, so we can't just you know, run a regression on, on certain things and different players have different roles, uh, very specialized roles and d- during plays or very different kinds of plays. Uh, so, uh, that's part of the, part of the distinction between, uh, you know, the sabermetrics guys trying to get into football. They couldn't really do that. The big breakthrough happened, I would say in 2009. And, um, I was, uh, I had just developed a win probability model it was really the first one that really worked that, that, that didn't give you kind of junky, you know, nonsense answers. And, uh, I, I was wondering what, what we can do with it. And so I thought this would be a really good decision analysis tool as far as uh, the fourth down problem. So what to do on fourth down was this classic problem in football. You can punt, you can attempt a field goal, or you can try to go for it and keep the ball. And there were, there was earlier research that said, well, you should be going for it a whole lot more often, mm-hmm. um, stop punting so frequently. I was a big believer in this research, but, uh, coaches would, w- were rejecting it because the model, those models could not, uh, handle time and score. So depending on the time and score, you have different kind of risk tolerance. And that makes a huge difference, especially towards the end of the game. So we kind of went from Newtonian football analytics into relativity football analytics when we could kind of adapt things for for time and score and once we were able to do that it basically gave us a, a general theory of football decision making and we could we could decide what to do on fourth down know when to go for a two point conversion when to call a timeout any kind of game level decision that a coach needs to make uh, we can analyze it and so what allowed us to 
to do that? Is that, uh, were, were there, um, you know, sounds like, you know, data-driven models based on that, but was this, you know, machine learning or was this uh, some other kind of technique that allowed us to get there? And what was the before? What were, how sophisticated was the use of analytics that, you know, in the, the, the theory that said that we were uh, not passing enough? Yeah, well, there was, uh, there was prior research uh, by an, an economist named, named Romer, not, not the Nobel laureate, but another one. Um, he, he looked at, um, using what's called an expected points model, uh, which takes into account kind of field position, um, and, uh, and the, the point value, the, the net expected point value of having the ball and having a first down at every single yard line on the field. And from that you could deduce if, if you assume that the game is a point optimization, um, um, uh, contest for an infinite amount of time, then that model would apply. And that, that assumption of point maximization and infinite time works fairly well through the first three quarters of a game. Right. And when, when the score is relatively close, but when you, when a team is trailing by a lot of points or well ahead by a lot of points or in the end game in the fourth quarter, when, when time is a big factor. So for example, point maximization doesn't work if you, um, if you're down by one point with one second left to play, uh, you're not going to, you don't want to optimize your points. That might mean try for a touchdown. You just want to win the game. So going from point maximization to win probability maximization was this big jump. And yes, that was uh, a big machine learning model. Um, I, I was pretty new to all this, you know, R was just kind of coming online. I had used SPSS in, in grad school. But what I wanted for my purposes didn't really exist. I wanted to use uh, you know, non-parametric regressions. And so I, 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 had, I taught myself, uh, what's that called? The Excel um, basic uh, plugin. Uh, okay. I can't remember. Uh, whatever that, the uh, whatever visual that basic is. for applications. VBA, yeah, VB, VBA for Excel. Yeah. Yeah. And I created my own uh, Lois uh, function. Okay. And use use that to build out the um, the models. And the part the other thing is that uh, you know football scoring happens in these in these chunks, like seven points and three points. Mm-hmm. And uh, and so you you can't regress over points. That they're they're discrete chunks. Um, so uh, being being ahead by two points is not twice as good as being ahead by by one point, for example. You mentioned wanting to apply a non-parametric regression of this. Why non-parametric? Uh, because the, the, these curves were, you, you could use splined regressions. You could use the, the it was very non-linear. Um, it was not something that they say, um, you, know, you know, quadratics or polynomial type uh, regression lines would, would adapt well to. So I wanted something more flexible, um, especially toward, towards the end game. Uh, things get very dynamic, and so uh, th- these curves, uh, these win probability curves, um, basically think of a chart of um, maybe the the y-axis is win probability, the x-axis is you know field position, and we're looking at slices of of time and score, and so basically you get a bunch of curves, and those those curves are um, can get pretty dynamic t- toward the end game. And so this was, did you say 2009 that uh, the win probability model, you came out with that? Yeah, I think I started 
working on that. And what, what I was able to do is acquire a big library of uh, play-by-play data. And that was, there was this, it was just this confluence of computing power and tools and the data sure. that became available online. So it was, it was just kind of these things just all happened at the same time. And I just happened to have, have the spare time and the interest to, to, um, to tackle that. And yeah, so it was 2009 and I'll never forget. I had a brief, uh, 15 minutes of, of, uh, notoriety, um, the Patriots and Bill Belichick went for a, an infamous fourth down uh, late in the game against Peyton Manning's Colts in 2009. It was November 2009. And I, I was already fairly established. I was writing for the New York Times and doing analysis for them. And I wrote, I said, uh, everybody thought that Bill Belichick going for it with a lead was a fourth and two on his own 36, something like that. And the, by the book, you always punt. And mm-hmm. I, I wrote an article. I said, no, actually, uh, here, it was a good decision to go for it, even though it failed. Uh, and here's why. And it was just, you know, once you do, once you build the models uh, to apply them, it only requires a tiny bit of, you know, algebra. Mm-hmm. And it's one one line of algebra. And, uh, and the next thing I know, Sports Illustrated was calling. ESPN did a big feature on me the next Sunday. Oh, wow. And uh, and so it, it, it was just by luck that this happened. And, um, I think that got a lot of attention throughout the league and teams started thinking about analytics at that point. So I think we, we digressed a little bit from deep QB. Um, so you have all this, this data, uh, well, is the, is, was deep QB based on, uh, only the, the shoulder chip data or are there other sources that you pulled into, uh, that model? Well, we used you know, some, some of the metadata from the play itself. So down distance yard line. And we also collect, uh, by hand at ESPN, we, we call it, uh, uh, video analysis tracking. And they, we, we have a human person looking at each play in near real time. And they, they'll say, was this, uh, you know, play action pass or, um, was, was this a drop? Uh, so, so it was a good pass. It landed right in the receiver's hands and you should have caught it, but you just didn't make the play. So little things like that, uh, was um, added to the added to the player tracking data. Got it, got it. And I think we skipped past the punchline. What's the key problem that you're trying to solve or answer that you're trying to get at with uh, Deep QB? Well, I was interested in quarterback decision making. Um, it, it that's probably the most mysterious yet most important part of football, uh, mm-hmm. especially in the NFL, where it's really a passing game and it, and the quarterback is so important. And that decision making, you can you can analyze physical skills, right? Like running and jumping and strength and things like that. But it, it's really hard to quantify decision making, especially under pressure in 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 uh, you know highly dangerous situations. So it reminded me of my days as, as a fighter pilot. Um, I did I wasn't the athlete that that Cam Newton is, but when when I strapped a, a, an F eighteen on my back, you know I, we were all Cam Newtons out there. And we were, we all had to make, you know, kind of life and death decisions, uh, under, you know, great duress and, you know, under, under uncertainty as well. And so I I saw the parallels. I was very interested in that. And so I thought, okay, how, how would we, how would we examine quarterback decision-making? And so what are the, tell us about the model that you came up with to, to do that. 
Well, what I wanted to do is pr- predict, use a model to try to predict which quarterbacks or who, who, which receiver of the five eligible receivers a quarterback would throw to. And the idea mm-hmm. was that I wanted to identify res- quarterbacks who are making good reads and identifying the the best receiver to throw to. So th- this is a, a decision he has to make. He has to choose between one of five to try to throw to. Mm-hmm. And um, that, that's the key decision I wanted to look at. Uh, so th- what the model was trying to do was trying to look at the, the play itself, look at the presentation, the geometry, the velocities, the positions of, of all the players on the field and say, who who should an NFL quarterback throw to given this picture presented to the quarterback? Mm-hmm. And the idea was it was kind of epistemological sleight of hand. I was like, well, the, these quarterbacks are all really, really good. They're they're the best in the world. So the the average typical quarterback is probably making the right decision. And therefore, I'm going to compare each individual quarterback's performance, uh, so who you know, which which receiver he does throw to, with what the model um, suggests the, the best receiver to throw to would be, and so that that was the idea. And did your data include characteristics of the receiver, or is it solely based on the play geometry and the options available? Uh, from a, a, a field position perspective, as opposed to the, you know, some kind of data talking about the receiver's performance historically in that kind of situation. No, unfortunately, no. The there's really no like uh, the data has no like z axis. Uh-huh. So there, there's no we don't know how high or how high he jumps or or how high the ball was thrown or um, we don't. Uh, we don't know that. We do know things about the receiver as far as what, what's his velocities and accelerations and things like that, which his individual talents certainly um, are, are big influences on. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, but what we don't what we don't have is the hands. You know, some receivers are just have better hands. They just have a knack for right. uh, catching balls. Uh, so, unfortunately, no. But we're, we're aggregating over you know a large, um, very large data set. So, um, the, you know, the, the idea there is that it's going to, um, average out. Mm-hmm. So you, you create this model, uh, that, uh, is trained on the historical decisions that quarterbacks make again, with this assumption that they're all, uh, good quarterbacks. And then you want to be able to compare any given quarterback decision with this model to see if it was, you know, a good decision or maybe the the quarterback kind of, you know, made a bad decision under pressure or something. That's the general idea. Yeah. So the idea is to isolate the contribution of quarterback decision making to so performance. So we can observe the performance on the field. We see, okay, that was a 10 yard catch or that was an incomplete pass, for example. Mm-hmm. How much? How much was the quarterback decision contributing to success and failure in the, the, these plays? So I was thinking of a quarterback. If, if you're a football fan, you may be familiar with a quarterback named Tyrod Taylor, uh, who is who's infamous for overlooking open receivers. Mm-hmm. And instead mm-hmm. of instead of throwing to an open receiver, he was a little bit gun shy. He would take off running. He was a very fast runner, um, and he was not a bad quarterback. But he, he just got a, he was. Coaches were very frustrated with him for that. And so I thought, can we identify something like this? Who's, who's, a good, who's making good reads and who's making poor reads? And so let's say in the case of Tyrod Taylor, there is a, a receiver that's open. The model sees it. It says, hey, a, a typical NFL quarterback has an eight, would throw to this receiver 80% of the time. Tyrod is throwing to some you know, running back 
um, who's, you know, two yards deep instead, uh, who the model doesn't think you should throw to. And then we would, we would use those comparisons to make a judgment about quarterback, um, uh, decision-making abilities. Yeah. Does the model also work the, the other way? Um, meaning can it identify quarterbacks that, uh, are able to, you know, have a higher than normal success percentage throwing to unlikely, uh, receivers or something like that? Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, that's, that's what happened. So the assumption about that kind of, you know, hand waving, I, I mentioned earlier, right. wasn't really true. And so what, <laughs> ha- what happens is like, you want to say like, Hey, Aaron Rodgers is really good quarterback. He makes good reads, do what Aaron Rodgers would do. Just make the same decision he would make. And you, mm-hmm. you would tell a rookie to do that, but that would be calamitous because that rookie doesn't have the same skills and the same accuracies, the same arm strength necessarily as Aaron Rodgers. So Aaron Rodgers is making different reads, making more aggressive reads than say a typical quarterback because he can, right? There's the selection effect. And so, yeah, so, you know, the, the insight is in the difference, you know, from the, um, from the predicted. So the the model is just there to establish a baseline. And then What's interesting is, is are the deviations from the baseline. Right, right. In both directions, it sounds like. Yeah. Tell us more about this model. Um, what what kind of model is it? It's, it's a neural network, very vanilla. It's just a, a feed-forward network. Um, I was really just getting started, and I, I just wanted something that would work. Uh, so there's some other, other, you know, different kinds of models you could use. Um some of the the previous work in soccer and basketball had would take the player tracking data, kind of create a graphical image of player trajectories from that, and then use convolutional neural networks um, or uh, LSTM type uh, recurrent neural networks. Mm-hmm. Um, I just I I just took a snapshot in time at pass release and and looked at the play and looked at where the receivers were, where the defenders were, all the relative geometries and velocities, and um, built a built a I think it's it's a four layer uh, feed forward network and um, at the at the end of it you, you could ask it just about any question you so it was it was kind of modular I would say uh, tell me like we've been talking about until now, predict which of the five receivers you think this quarterback should throw to. Mm-hmm. And, or I could replace a, a predict the, uh, the mean yardage gained you see on this play or predict the, whether or not this is going to be intercepted or not, uh, or completed or incomplete. So you, you could ask the model the same question. And the, what really surprised me was that when I was going through and kind of tuning all the hyperparameters, all the, the you know number of nodes and layers and things like that. It was really in, the results were invariant to that structure, or the structure was really dependent on the the data. And since I was feeding it the same data, but asking it different questions, I could keep the same network structure and just kind of change the the final layer and get get very good results. The network was relatively straightforward. Did you, you mentioned R earlier. Did you end up doing this in R or something else? <laughs> yeah. Well, it, it's a plugin through Python, but I used to. I Keras. thought you were going to say an Excel yeah. plugin. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, I've graduated from those days. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I am, I'm an R cripple. I, I mean, I'm fluent in R, and, but I, I can uh, probably, you know, order dinner in Python. 
Um, but that's about <laughs> it. But uh, there's there's a great plugin uh, through R. Um, so uh, and and since I was doing all the the, the data uh, building and processing through R, uh, it was very handy just to stay in that environment. Okay. So yeah, Keras with with TensorFlow on the on the back end, and um, it it. Uh, it's, it converged and started giving me results. I was very surprised. My first try, um, I was very excited when I started getting uh, good results. You know, we talked a little bit about the structure of this data. You've got kind of games that are aggregates of plays, and then you've got, um, you know, four years worth of games. How, how much of this data did, did you use to train on, and what, did you find that... Uh, you know, how much of it kind of got you to the point of diminishing returns? Uh, well, I used all the data I could. I, did, I didn't really try to find out how little data I needed. Uh -huh. um, so I, I got, I guess, so I was using, um, I split the data into three parts. So, you know, training, validation, and then test. Mm -hmm. And the test was set aside as just the, um, the, the current season at the time. So when I, when I was writing up the paper, so that was the 2018 season. So I've got about three quarters of that 2018 season is, is kind of a test set. Mm -hmm. Then all the training and validation, all the tweaking and things, that was done using like about a 70-30 split of uh, the the two seasons of 20, 2016 and 17, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And then um, uh, and that, 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 that was useful because – the, the test results, right, which hadn't touched any of the, the training or validation data, had never been seen by the model in any in any form. Um, that was the current season. So we could do actual analysis, like real world analysis using using the, the test results. The, is the model trained on a play at a time or uh, and did you is it trained? I'm assuming it's trained on only passing plays. So you're filtering at, that out based on these tags and, and you're training it as a, on a play at a time, or is there some other structure for the training data? Yeah, it's, it's only passing plays. And in fact, it's only targeted passing plays. So any, any plays that were kind of throwaway, um, got it throwaway. So quarterback just didn't want to get sacked. So he throws it out of bounds. Yeah. Uh, those were discarded. So there was no target on this. I couldn't predict what, what the target was. Theoretically, you could make that a sixth option I, I, in retrospect, but that wasn't really what I was interested in at the time. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, yeah, so it's it's trained to, yeah, basically a, a play, you know, the, the atom of this model is is one play. Right. Um, and, and the, you know, but there was a batch of plays, that obviously, that was fed through, um, sure, you know, sure. for, the, for the training. And how many plays total did you have access to in your data set? How, I, I think about a little bit foggy but totally about 36,000 wow okay um, plays pass plays yeah and which i think is more than sufficient um but i also had, i i did this trick um where i just took the mirror image of every play and added that uh to to the uh to the data um you had to be careful not to have a mirror have the mirror image be both in the validation or mm -hmm. or training, right? So you have to you have to segregate those, but that way you're you're getting even you're getting even more data um, with the assumption that there's symmetry uh, to a play. So somebody who's wide open on the right side of the field would be wide open, just as wide open on the left side of the field, and that's generally true, except for quarterback handedness. You can have right-handed quarterbacks, left-handed quarterbacks that might have an effect, mm -hmm. um, but there, no, there, there happens to be no left-handed quarterbacks for the last few years. So, okay, um, 
that, that's an interesting approach to data augmentation. So did, when you do that mirroring, given the handedness of the quarterbacks, are you just mirroring the line structure? I guess you're, the quarterback is just a point here, so that doesn't matter, right? Yeah, you, you just – just like I was – you know, I just picked up this common technique with, um, you know, like uh, computer vision techniques, right? Mm-hmm. So if you want to identify a picture of a dog, you know, that the dog kind of looking to the right. If you flip that image with a dog looking to the left, they're both dogs. Right. Um, so that, that was the idea. Um, but it, it's complicated. Like I had to do it by hand, essentially. So I had to, you know – do all these kind of geometric transformations, uh, including with the, all the angles as well. So, mm-hmm. um, if you're heading, if you're heading zero three zero on the, on the true play on the mirrored play, you're heading, uh, you know, three, three zero. Right. So, um, yeah, it was a little Got bit it. laborious, but, but, uh, it was in, in the interest of eking up the, the performance metric by one or two points. Okay. Uh, and you mentioned that you're, you segregated your uh, validation and, and test sets based on the season. Did you uh, explore, you know, something that was more randomized or the, you know, any kind of implications of kind of bias season to season, like over long term periods of time, players get, you know, better and stronger. Does that have any effect in a, a short term season to season? Well, yeah. I didn't do that, um, but it is well known that um, qu- quarterbacks t- take a jump after their rookie year. So they're basically they're, from their second year on is kind of their their steady state performance level. So if you really want to know, like what what is, what is this quarterback's career going to look like, mm-hmm. with, with very rare exceptions, his his second full season is very representative of you know he's pretty much hit his his steady state at that point. Mm-hmm. So, um, but now so because, you know we 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 aggregated the. The, the idea at first, anyway, there's a fourth variant of the model I haven't talked about, but um, there's a uh, uh, it, it's basically the aggregation, the average quarterback all kind of blended into one um, was was kind of like the the proto uh, deep QB. OK, and so you, you kind of ignored the, you know, any implications of testing based on a totally separate season as opposed to kind of randomized testing. We did, we did find that the, the 2018 performance was where there was a drop in performance. Like you, you would typically expect. Um, but there was an unusual, unusually high number of rookies. Um, there was, it was, it was generally an up year for passing. So there's year to year variance, um, due to things like, uh, just randomness, rule changes, uh, injuries to some of the elite quarterbacks will change um, overall passing the level of passing performance uh, for the league as a whole year to year. Uh, last year was a was a big up year, um, so yeah, there, there might be something uh, to that. Uh, you mentioned a fourth variant to the model. Yeah, this was the coolest one, but it didn't really it didn't work as well as I, <laughs> I had hoped. But it was so, so I thought the idea was so cool. I had to put it in the paper anyway. People were like, "Yeah, it's too long of papers. So you got to cut it out, um, cut this part out." And I was like, "No, it's too cool." Um, so the idea was to use uh, transfer learning. So um, it's it's kind of inspired by the same way, let's say, biological brains work. So think of a quarterback has to have these very intuitive, instinctive parts of his brain that understand things like distance and motion and, um, you know, speeds and this kind of intuitive 
uh, physics model in, in our brains. And, and we generally share those, right? We're all pretty good drivers, right? We, we're all, you know, humans have these, share these, these faculties, but we don't all have the same decision-making. Uh, I have an 18 year old son, <laughs> so I know we don't all <laughs> share the same decision. He's a very, he's, he's a very good decision maker actually for, for an 18 year old, but I, I was 18 once too. Uh, so we don't all share the same, um, decision-making abilities. Uh, so those executive functions may tend to differ much more than the the lower level uh, functions, and those are this you, you could model it the same way with neural networks. So the so what I did was trained the the lower level the lower layers lower level layers of the model on the on the data set as a whole, just like I had done with the that we've been talking about. Mm-hmm. And then what I would do is take the the like the top layers, which we could think of as the the executive functions, the ones that are, okay, we've digested this play. We understand, um, you know, where people are and what's important to look at and the relative velocities and things like that. Yeah. Now let's make a decision about who to throw to. And so the, those top layers, we, we froze the base layers, retrain the top layers, uh, just on the, um, on an individual quarterback. Mm-hmm. And then we could, we could say, we could take like a Tom Brady or like I did in, with a paper, I took Drew Brees and, um, uh, you could, you could basically download Drew Brees' brain into a, you know, into a USB, um, drive or something like that it would be the idea. Right. And then just like we said before, like do what Aaron Rodgers would do. Right. So we, now we have a model of what Aaron Rodgers would do or what Drew Brees would do given certain situations. So we could actually take a situation that Tom Brady was in and replace him with a rookie and say, now, you know, what would the rookie do compared to Tom Brady in this same exact situation? Mm-hmm. Um, it was pretty ambitious. Uh, the, the results weren't as interesting as I, as I thought, um, partially because the rookie, the rookies tend to throw a lot of check downs, which means they, they throw to, they throw short passes to relatively safe receivers, um, rather than taking a lot of risks. And the Saints offense happens to do that by design a lot. Uh, they like they have very good running backs last year, and so uh, Drew Brees came up. So we ran a similarity metrics, and all the rookies uh, came up very similar to to Drew Brees, which is not what I had hoped to see. And was that the only quarterback you tried to apply it to, or was, or did you apply it to all of them, and you found that it was kind of similarly not all that interesting for all of them? Yeah, well, I tried some of the uh, consensus elite uh, quarterbacks of so Brady's, uh, mm-hmm. Rodgers, um, Breeze, and I can't think, I can't remember if I did with anyone else, but, uh, you know, the, I, I chose Breeze. The results were, were decent with him. And so uh, researchers prerogative, that's the one I, I put in the paper. Interesting. Yeah, that would have been really interesting if it worked. <laughs> yeah, but it was just, it was just the first stab. I mean, the, really, yeah. this is the first um, research like this is uh, beyond this is commonplace in basketball and soccer. But this was just the first stab at it with with football. We were just kind of like, what's mm-hmm. the, let's take a moonshot here. If we could do something, yeah. the coolest thing we we want to do, uh, go go run with it and and see how far you can you can carry the ball. What are your priorities for kind of pushing this further? Do you do you use a relatively simple model? Do you think a kind of a deeper, you know, state of the art CNN might perform better or, you know, doing different things with the data and you know, finding 
additional data sources to kind of supplement what you already have? Like, what, what do you have in mind for pushing this further? Well, the, the next step would be something that we, we could run this. First, let me say we can run this model at any kind of time step in the play. You know, mm-hmm. well before the pass actually takes place. And so we can have a continuous analysis as the play goes on. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's only trained on when when the pass is actually released. Um, the, the the next step I would do if I had the time um, would apply LSTM uh, models to, to the data okay. uh, throughout the, you know, so it would be continuous from the snap all the way uh, through pass release. And so we're accumulating information from the entire play, not just a, a time sliver at um, pass release. But but do keep in mind, we do have velocity and acceleration information on each player, which kind of gives us, you know, back, you know, two time steps, I guess, theory, right. uh, worth of information. But I think we can accumulate m- even more information. I, I, I don't think CNNs would be would perform as well in theory because what the CNNs are trying to do is is to get position and get the geometries, get the relative information from from a graphic, uh, and then you, you apply that um, you know further downstream in a model. Whereas we we already have the x's and y's and the distances and geometries and angles that a CNN would have to learn along the way. Um, so we can uh, so I, I think using the raw inputs, the x y's the distances, uh, some some features that are engineered, uh, kind of relative distances to nearest pass coverage uh, player, things like that, I think would uh, perform best. I'm curious to the extent to which explainability has come up um, for for you. Do you get asked to you know be able to produce uh some justification for the predictions that the model is making and how have you uh have you handled that yeah that's a tough question um you, sometimes there's some head head scratching results you know you don't under why is the model saying that and most of the time though it's very understandable and plausible kind of obvious um but the uh on a case by case basis you can look at these plays and and you know, make it, make a human judgment. And oh, if you know enough football, you understand why it's, it's making the decision. It is the model's working the way it is. Um, but you know, unfortunately explainability is, is a tough problem with neural networks. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, if I, if I had the time, what I would do is I'd build like a, an app, an application where you could kind of dial in, you could just drag and drop, um, players on a screen and uh, some of the Disney research guys I talked to had actually done this with with basketball, where you could kind of move the players around and then see how that affects the the model outputs. And that way you can directly um, you know test. Well, if I make this player closer to this other player, how does that affect things? If I make them further away, if I make them faster, how does that? So just by trial and error, you can you can come to some form of understanding, but some general understanding about it is is uh um, a difficult task awesome project are you know what suggestions would you have for uh folks that you know are listening to this also have a passion for sports and want to uh experiment with uh these types of models uh applied to to sports well there, there is player tracking data available um 
even for football, even for NFL football. But there are databases out there, some soccer, uh, basketball is a little bit harder to get a hold of. I, I can't give you any, you know, I don't have a URL for you right now, but um, except in football. So the NFL at the combine um, uh, in the spring, late winter, early spring, the, at the combine, they held a, what they called a big data bowl. And with that, they released a subset of games, I think maybe about nine weeks um, worth of games. And they released that data uh, for um, a basically Kaggle type competition. Mm-hmm. And then they, they had their winners and, um, you know, their finalists and announced the winner there at the combine. So that data um, still exists out there on the, on, on the web somewhere. So just Google uh, big NFL big data bowl. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, it'll take you to, um, it'll take you to that, that site. And I think it's still available. There are definite limitations on what you can do with that data. Um, the other thing is the NFL put out uh, punt play data in Kaggle and that may still be available as well. So if you're interested, um, that, that's a, that's a great place to get started just, just with the, with the data. Um, but it, it's, uh, it's a lot to get your arms around. You have to start, you know, learning like, okay, that zero, zero point, where is that on the field? Is that at the back of the end zone? Is that, mm-hmm. is this left oriented, right oriented? Is it, you know, which way is the, the zero degree, uh, heading axis on here? And is this in degrees or radiant? You know, all those things that takes a while. So it's, it's definitely a chore, but, um, it was, it was a lot of fun. Well, Brian, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Really, really interesting stuff. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Tim. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.